All right, let's go to the Lord in uh, prayer. And I've not done this in a while, but I'm going to, as for our prayer tonight, I'm going to read a prayer from the Valley of Vision um, uh, that sort of zooms in on on a spirit of thanksgiving. And so that's going to be our our prayer as we lead into the message tonight. Uh, So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Giver of all, as I take my place beneath the great Redeemer's cross, where healing streams continually descend, where balm is poured out into every wound, where I wash anew in the all-cleansing blood, assured that you see in me no spots of sin. Yet in a short while, I shall go to thy home and be no more seen. Help me in the meantime to prepare my mind, to quicken my step, to speed as if each moment were my last, that my life may be joy and my death glory. I thank thee for temporal blessings of this world, the refreshing air, the light of the sun, the food that renews strength, the raiment that clothes the dwelling that shelters, sleep that gives rest, the starry canopy of night, the summer breeze, the flowers' sweetness, the music of flowing streams, the happy endearments of family, kindred, and friends, things animate and things inanimate. Minister to my comfort. My cup runneth over. Suffer me not to be insensible to your daily mercies, Thy hand bestows blessings. Thy power averts evil. I bring my tribute of thanks for spiritual graces. The full warmth of faith. The cheering presence of thy spirit. The strength of thy restraining will. And thy disabling of hell's attacks. Blessed be my sovereign Lord. We pray these things and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So our scripture reading uh, tonight and the passage that we're going to be in is in Luke chapter 20, continuing in our series in the Gospel of Luke. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 20. The section we're in tonight is verses 27 through 44. So it says, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? All right, so we are going to just jump right into this passage tonight. 
Um, I think we're going to be here. We're not going to be here a whole long time tonight, but I say that every time thinking we're going to, the sermon is going to be a shorter one that ends up being the same amount of time anyway. So, um, we jump right into this passage and it's the same context that we have been seeing throughout the gospel of Luke chapter 20. So Jesus authority is questioned at the beginning of the chapter. And then these various, uh, entities, these various groups come in and test Jesus in different ways. They pose these questions to him, trying to, to, um, trap him, trying to, uh, uh, get him to say something that they can accuse him of. So we come to this situation with the Sadducees and the Sadducees ask Jesus this question. And immediately, maybe we notice something. And if you were here last week, when we were talking about um, how you might recognize someone who was trying to trap you in your words, if, if someone was, was out to, um, not out to actually learn, not out to actually get an answer, but was just out to try to trap you in something, what some of the characteristics of that person might be. And one of the things that we said is that person might present elaborate hypothetical scenarios and then demand a yes or no answer from you, right? Well, man, we can almost find no uh, more obvious hypothetical scenario than this this scene um, that the Sadducees describe to uh, to Jesus. And so what they are referencing in in their question is is the practice in that was commanded in the Old Testament. Um, because of the significance of lineage, because of the significance of um, the allotment of land and families connecting back to the patriarchs and all these different things, there was a, a thing in place. If a man married a woman and before they were able to have any children, before he was able to have a, an heir to, to continue on his family line, if he were to die, then what was supposed to happen is... That man's brother was supposed to also marry the, 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 the former sister-in-law, now his wife. But the children that that brother would have with the woman would not be counted as his own children, but they would be counted as his brother's children. And so they would receive his brother's allotment and his brother's inheritance. And that was a way to keep the, the, the lineage of Israel going um, and to not sort of whittle down into to um, smaller groups, all right? And so they present this elaborate hypothetical scenario. Well, what if a man marries and he has, he dies and, and then he has seven brothers and another brother marries but dies before he has a kid and another brother marries and has dies before he has a kid and another brother marries and dies before he has a kid and all seven marry her and none of them have kids and eventually she dies. And the question at the end is, in the resurrection, when everybody is resurrected, whose wife will this woman end up being of the seven brothers? So it's important to recognize that how this trap functions, because that's exactly what's going on. Last week, the trap was set by the Pharisees to try to put Jesus at odds with some group in Israel. So last week, the issue was, should we pay the poll tax? Should we pay the head tax that goes directly to Rome and that Rome uses however they want to? And they wanted Jesus to say something because they knew that either he would offend uh, the Jewish nation or he would put himself on the outs with the Roman authorities. But this issue is not so much political or, or sociological, but it's about theological posture as the Sadducees come to it. Um, and our hint is in who is asking the question. And how they are described. It's these Sadducees that are asking this question. And what does it tell us about it? Um, at the very beginning, it says the Sadducees asked those who deny that there is a resurrection. So the Sadducees, you, you may be familiar because we talk a lot in Bible studies about these four key groups in, in New Testament sort of political religious structure, right? They're the Pharisees that we hear a lot about. And there were the, the Sadducees and there were the Essenes. And then there were these people called the Zealots. And so the Sadducees are one of these groups. And basically who the Sadducees are is they are the primary ruling aristocratic elite of the Jewish nation. They are largely connected to the priestly caste, okay? So most of the priestly um, caste uh, and family of Israel belonged to this larger party of the Sadducees. But it wasn't just the priest. It was sort of a aristocratic ruling class 
um, in, in the nation of Israel. Uh, we talk about the Pharisees a lot, and the Pharisees filled the role of conservative lay religious leaders, okay? They were conservative and laymen in terms of, of the religious hierarchy. But the Sadducees are from the priestly line, or at least connected to the priestly line. And so whereas the, the Pharisees didn't have official religious authority, but were a popular religious movement among the people, the Sadducees are the, are the real deal in terms of their authority. They're the actual ones um, who are in control. And it also happened to be the case that the, the, the Sadducees tended to be the more religiously liberal or theologically liberal compared to, to uh, the Pharisees. So, for example, the Sadducees did not believe that there would be a resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection at all. And there were a number of other doctrines that they didn't believe. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in eternal punishment or eternal reward. In fact, it's, it's questionable exactly how they even viewed the afterlife at all, whether or not they even believed there was an afterlife at all. And so they are the kind of, there's almost a sense in which there are all these supernatural elements that we see in, in the scriptures, and the Sadducees are sort of saying, none of that's real. None of that exists. And the whole reason they're asking this question is because they want to demonstrate um, that what they presume to be Jesus' beliefs about the resurrection um, are are silly and and nonsensical, and so you can kind of imagine it like this. So obviously there are um, certain aspects of things that we believe as as biblical Christians, events that we believe that took place, and yet we recognize that there is a maybe it's the wrong word for it, but a fantastical element to it. So for example. Jonah being swallowed by the whale, right? We recognize that for that to happen, something miraculous had to take place, right? This wasn't just going to be a normal event where some dude gets swallowed by a fish and he's in his belly for three days. Something more, God has to be moving in a particular way there. Another story would be something like Noah's Ark, okay? So how does, how does Noah get these, all these pairs of animals to show up at the ark and come two by two? The secular world looks at those kinds of stories and mocks them, right? You probably have heard people mock them. You've watched a YouTube video or or maybe had a conversation with somebody at work, and they've said, and this is silliness, right? The Bible, these stories in the Bible, they're just nonsense. Uh, how can these things actually be true? I would argue that's exactly the kind of attitude that the Sadducees are coming with, right? They're coming saying, you know, you religious conservatives, you believe in these silly things like the resurrection, right? The idea that one day we are all going to be raised from the dead and, and live again on earth. Let me show you why an idea like that is silly. And so then they pose this elaborate question. Now, in Luke's account of this passage, Jesus is pretty diplomatic when he answers the, the Sadducees. What's interesting though is that in Matthew and Mark's accounts of the gospel, in the uh, gospels and the accounts of this story, Jesus flexes a little bit, you might say, okay? How Jesus responds to these questions is not as diplomatic. So in, in Matthew and Mark's response, Jesus says to the Sadducees, oh, well, the reason you're asking this question is you're mistaken since you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God, right? Um, which is, is, is a pretty in-your-face kind of answer, right? Imagine that every time somebody uh, who was a friend of yours or, or, or somebody in the church said something to you uh, or disagreed with you or whatever, and you were like, oh, the reason why you think that way is because you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God, right? That would be a certain kind of, there would be an off-puttingness um, to that, okay? And so, but that's exactly what Jesus does in this case. He says, you don't, the reason why you think this way, the reason why you think this is silliness is because you don't understand the scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. So in verse 34, Jesus says, no, that's not the case. Let me explain to you what it actually looked like, looks like in the resurrection. He says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So what Jesus' response does is he starts off by basically saying this. He says, you've made assumptions 
about the way that you think the resurrection is going to work. And it's in light of those assumptions that you are now attacking it. But here's the deal. You're wrong about those assumptions. You're incorrect about the way you think all of these things are going to play out. The life in the resurrected state, yes, is going to be similar in some ways to life as it is now. But also, Jesus is telling us that there are going to be significant ways in which that new life in the resurrection is going to be completely different than it is now. All right. And so there are announced, this is why it's so hard for us to talk about heaven. It's so hard for us to talk about uh, the new heaven and the new earth and what it will be like after the return of Christ and the resurrected resurrection for the dead and all these things is because here's the reality. The Bible doesn't always give us specifics about how all these things are going to play out. But what we can tell is there is going to be some analogy to how we live now. There's going to be some similarities. But then at the same time, there are going to be ways in which it is very different. So the Sadducees seem to be assuming that people who believe in the resurrection think everything is just going to keep on going the way it is now. And Jesus blatantly says, that's not true. Things are going to be different in the resurrection. There won't be marriage in the resurrection. So while that institution plays a significant role in this life, it's not going to have a purpose in the resurrection life. Now, that worries some people. Probably to some people, it's a relief. They're like, "Woo, man. Uh, but, 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 but to many people, it worries them, right? Because they go, well, I, I love my spouse, and I, I don't like the idea of us not being married in eternity. I, that's, a, that's a problem. Well, one thing as a comfort, I would say, is this, is that there's not going to be anything missing uh, in that place, right? Okay, We're not going to look back at this life and go, you know, I wish it was like it used to be. That's not going to be a problem. Whatever the case is, however that dynamic and relationship of marriage and its and its uh, fulfillment in the resurrection is going to work out, we're not going to miss something. Something is going to be provided that is more full and better in some way. And again, you might say, well, Ash, what might that look like? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know for sure what it will look like, okay? I can give you sort of hints that the Bible might say about us finding fulfillment in Jesus Christ and all these things like that, but I can't explain exactly how it's going to happen because maybe the Bible doesn't give us those specifics. Certainly it's the case that the truth that marriage symbolizes, the unity between a husband and wife representing the unity of Christ in his church, that's going to be fulfilled. We are going to be with Christ and he's going to dwell among us. We talked about that last week, right? So what's marriage symbolized is going to be realized. And so at a level, its function won't make any sense anymore. It will have come to fulfillment. Moreover, in this passage, Jesus makes some kind of connection between marriage and the fact that we will be immortal at that point. So maybe, perhaps, because we are immortal, procreation is no longer necessary, which is one of the central aspects of of marriage and family. But he doesn't exactly make that connection. He just makes this sort of, this comment about the fact that we will be, uh, where does he say, for verse 36, for they cannot die anymore. People who have been resurrected can't die anymore. And then notice, just a little bit of a flex again, a little bit of a dig, he says, because they will be equal to the what? To the angels. Why does he drop that in there? It doesn't even seem like it has any connection because the Sadducees don't believe in the angels either, right? That's another thing that the Sadducees don't believe in. And so Jesus is just sort of adding these little pieces saying, yeah, your problem is that you're wrong about everything, right? You don't understand the relationship of any of these things. And that's why you don't believe in these things. So then Jesus, because he knows what's really going on. He knows why these questions were asked. He knows that the real issue is not this elaborate scenario, but the real issue is resurrection. Jesus then goes in on that, right? He recognizes that they were trying to present this ruse of a question to trap him. But so he just jumps in and addresses the question directly. And so here's something we find. When we look at the Old Testament, we find scripture about the resurrection in the Old Testament. Now, it's not probably laid out as blatantly as it is in some places in the New Testament, but we see a number of references, particularly in Daniel, particularly in Isaiah, 
lots of pictures of resurrection in the Psalms. Okay. And so sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, well, you know, the Old Testament doesn't teach about the resurrection. Wrong. Okay. It's in multiple places. It doesn't teach in as blatantly maybe as it does in the New Testament, but it's, but it's there. Okay. But here's another problem with the Sadducees. Those books that I just mentioned, Daniel, uh, Isaiah, Job is another place we see resurrection. The Psalms, the Sadducees don't believe in those books. So an interesting thing about the Sadducees is they saw as authoritative only the Torah, only the first five books of the Bible, only the books that came to us through Moses. The Sadducees say none of the rest of it is is authoritative, only the stuff that comes from, from those first five books. So what does Jesus do? Jesus says, that's fine. Uh, I'll give you an answer from those first five books. I will demonstrate the reality of the resurrection um, through those first five books. And so Jesus makes this astute observation, though a subtle one in a lot of ways, about the patriarchs. And so he says in verse 37, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. Okay, He mentions Moses because that's who the Sadducees would look to as an authority. They wouldn't accept Isaiah. They wouldn't accept Daniel. They wouldn't accept the psalmist. They wouldn't accept David. Moses was the authority. And he says, well, Moses taught these things. He taught that the dead would be raised. And so he goes to the passage about the burning bush where Moses is at the burning bush. And when Moses asks God, who should I tell the Israelites um, uh, has sent me? He says, and remember, he says, I am that I am sent you. But then he also says, tell them that the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob sent you. Now, here's the key to that. Uh, We've talked about the incredible condescension it is for God to name himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What is incredible about that is the fact that God demonstrates his incredible love for people his willingness to dwell amongst them and be associated them by actually naming himself in connection with them. So when he says, what God is it? Which God am I? He says, well, I am that I am, right? I'm Yahweh, but but what is my other not, name? What is the, the, the title that I have? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The God of these three little specks of, you know, uh, people that had lived on the back end of, of the world. And God says, I'm connect- I've connected myself to these people and to their descendants. I am their God. But the key point that Jesus zooms in on is he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who would have been long dead at that point. But he says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. What is the implication? that those men are all still alive and will be more fully alive again one day. That he is not the God of dead people, but God is the God of living people. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive in a spiritual sense and will be alive in a physical fleshly sense again in the future. So again, we often read Jesus his teaching, his words, and when he spoke, the Bible talks about the fact that he spoke with authority. And that seems to be the case here. Notice when Jesus says these things, it silences the people. In fact, if they're being sincere, it almost seems to be genuine repentance that they respond with. Verse 39 says, then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well for they no longer dared to ask him any questions, right? They recognize the wisdom and the authority of what Jesus has said. But here's another interesting idea to notice about this. And again, it points to Jesus' authority. How does Jesus know these things? How does Jesus know that in the resurrection, there's we're going to be like the angels? How does Jesus know that there's not going to be marriage in the resurrection because we'll have moved past that? How does he know these things? He doesn't learn them, as far as I can tell, from the Old Testament. The Old Testament isn't getting that specific, 
Okay, again, does the Old Testament teach resurrection? Definitely. But the Old Testament doesn't get into the specifics of of communal life and what it's going to be like between people and marriage and all these things like that. So again, the question would be, well, then how does Jesus know this? How can he speak with truth and authority on these questions? And, and obviously he does because even the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees seem to recognize it, right? They don't come back and go, you're just making this stuff up, Jesus. Like, where are you getting this stuff? Where are you getting this stuff about people aren't going to be married in the resurrection? That's not the Bible. It's not the Torah. It's not the prophets. Like, you're just making this stuff up. That's not what they say. They go, there's wisdom here. There's knowledge. There's authority. Where does that knowledge and wisdom and authority come from? Well, I think Jesus has obviously has a special insight, but he doesn't come by it by the way that we would come by special insight. All right. One of us might come and say, you know, I've got an interesting aspect to the scriptures, right? I've, I've been studying in, in the Bible and I've noticed this interesting thing, right? That would come to us. Uh, obviously through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but it would come from us studying in the word. Something different is happening with Jesus. And I think this next little section, which is also odd, we read past these things so often and we just go, yeah, yeah, I just remember this story, but it's an odd story. In this odd story, there's a subtle way in which he tells the, the, uh, the Sadducees how he has this special knowledge. So we know the phrase turnabout is fair play, right? And that's exactly what Jesus does. They've been questioning him, and now it's his turn to question them. So one thing that's interesting is all three of the synoptic gospels have a section that is almost identical where the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees all take their shots at Jesus, okay? And the same stories kind of pile up in all three of the accounts. Now, interestingly, Mark, I mean, uh, Luke leaves out the only kind of positive. So you probably, maybe you remember the story. There, there was the one we did last week of rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar. There's the one we're looking at this week. And then there's a third one that Luke leaves out. And it's where a scribe comes to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, well, you know what the word says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe comes back and says, that's right. That's the right answer. Because to love God is most important and to love your neighbor as yourself. You've spoken wisely and truly. It doesn't seem like this scribe is trying to trap Jesus. It actually seems like this scribe is maybe trying to see if Jesus is legit. And when he acknowledges Jesus' truthfulness, Jesus turns to him and says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Okay, And so that was what was, seems to be a positive story. Luke leaves that story out, and obviously there's no way we can know why Luke didn't include that story. It doesn't fit into his narrative. Um, but what we do see in this passage is now it's Jesus' turn to ask the questions. And so Jesus poses a question to them in verse 41. And each account in, in Matthew and Mark and Luke phrase it a little differently, but the gist is the same. And we see it in verse 41. He said to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? All right. So the, so, so there's an assumption there. What's the assumption that everybody believes that the Messiah who is to come is the son of David? Okay. Everybody knows that. Everybody agrees on that. It's what they expect from reading the Bible. And so then he says in verse 42, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, he's referencing Psalm 110 where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so then Jesus explains and says, David calls, thus calls him, the Messiah, Lord. So how is he his son? Okay, so the key is, is this what's going on? Jesus is not denying that the Messiah is David's son. You might read that and say, is he saying that Jesus is not the son of David? No, that's not what he's saying. But he is posing a mystery because it was agreed upon that the Messiah was a descendant of David. But the key is, is that in the Jewish culture, a son, a descendant, would never be given more honor than a father. Okay, So there would never be a situation in which a father would be expected to defer to his son, even probably in the case of a king, 
Okay, so you know what? When David, King David's father, uh, Jesse, came to um, came to uh, uh, court, he didn't get down and bow down to his son as king. He didn't defer to his son as king the way all of the other citizenry would. You know why? Because he was his dad, right? You, you didn't do that, okay? The father is always going to have a different relationship to the son, no matter what position the son is in. But the problem is, is this, is that David says, my Lord, the Lord, God said to my Lord, the Messiah. And he says, this doesn't make any sense. If David is the father of the Messiah, he should never call him Lord. All right. If David is father and ancestor of the Messiah, then there should never be a situation in which he would ever call one of his children, his descendants, Lord, because he's always going to be elevated above him as his progenitor, right? And so Jesus poses this question, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are stumped. They don't have an answer. But what's really interesting to me is, guess what? Jesus doesn't give them an answer. Did you notice that? Like, we have lots of places where Jesus is teaching something. He confronts them with something, but then he explains it. Jesus doesn't do that here. He just sort of throws this thing out and says, well, what about this weird place in the scriptures? And all the people go, and we don't know. We don't have an answer for that. And then that's it. Jesus doesn't say, well, the truth is, is that, and then he goes, he doesn't explain it. He just leaves it sitting there. Now, here's the deal. When he did that, it would not have revealed anything to the people listening. So go back to the situation. Jesus is standing here. The scribes are standing here. Jesus says, how do you explain this passage in Psalm 110? And they go, uh, we don't know. And Jesus doesn't give an answer. And they would have just gone about their business. They would have just been like, oh, Jesus knows some biblical stump questions. Okay. But it has a different effect for us reading the gospel of Luke, right? Because we know something more is going on. We know the rest of the story. And I think probably the case is, is that even for those people living in that time, something would have clicked later on down the road, is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have remembered back to this time where Jesus said this thing. And then once Jesus was resurrected, once these greater truths had, had come to revelation, had been revealed, once the, the New Testament writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit began to explain these things, they would look back on it the same way that we do. Because what Luke is doing is he is reaffirming something that we know to be true. And that is, is that Jesus is the Messiah and the Messiah is the son of David. But his authority and his knowledge are not a function of him being the son of David. All those things come to them. Jesus doesn't say these things because he studied the Bible really hard as a kid. Although Jesus probably studied the Bible really hard as a kid, right? I'm sure Jesus was a faithful young man who studied the scriptures uh, when he was growing up. But Jesus doesn't get his knowledge because he studied really hard. Jesus doesn't bear authority because of what he has done or some knowledge or some training he has come to. Jesus bears these things because of who he is. Jesus is the son of David, but he is more than that. He is the son of God as well. David calls him Lord because he is the Lord. David calls him Lord because he is David's son according to the flesh, but he is God's son according to the spirit. And so Jesus says, I know more than you, Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees. I speak with authority. I speak, in fact, revelation. Because, again, notice that. Jesus doesn't seem, now, obviously, he is in that second section where he's referencing Moses and the event at the burning bush. But when he's talking about people not marrying in the resurrection, as far as I can tell, he's getting that from He's revealing that, right? He's not referencing a Bible passage somewhere. Jesus is saying, here's new information that you're not privy to. 
that you've not known before this point. But I'm telling you what the reality is. And the reason I have access to that knowledge is, well, it's tied up in this mysterious passage in Psalm 110 about how David would refer to the Messiah as Lord. And I'm going to let you figure that out, okay? I'm not going to say it, and I'm not going to give you the answer up front, but it's all tied into those things. Jesus has authority and knows these things by virtue of his being. I know these things not because I was taught them, not because I learned them, but because it was by my spirit that these things were written in the first place. The Torah and the prophets were written by me, in essence, by my spirit working through the prophets. I am the author of those things. And again, that's the problem. It's been the problem all through Luke 20. The, the, the religious authorities uh, are questioning Jesus' legitimacy. Surely this carpenter's son, surely this peasant from the armpit of Israel, uneducated, untrained, from the wrong family, surely he can't be God's prophet. Surely he can't be the Messiah. Surely he can't, he must be a fake But the reality is, is that Jesus didn't come to his knowledge and authority through being legalistically uh, scrutinizing like the Pharisees did. He didn't come to his place by academic study the way the scribes did. He didn't come to his place through an inherited vocation the way the Sadducees did. No, Jesus bears revelation, truth, and authority because he is its origin. He is its author. He holds all these things because they come from him. And so that's that's a great theme for us as we head into Advent, okay? That is a great place to begin Advent because what we do during Advent is, is we look to the person of Christ and we look to the coming of Christ. Those are the two themes that we sort of zoom in on during the Advent season. We talk about who Jesus is. We remember his first coming. We look to his second coming. And so uh, it it seemed like a natural passage. You know, I talked about how a lot of times we will go somewhere completely different. We'll jump out of our regular routine and go somewhere different in the scriptures as we jump into Advent to talk about these themes. But man, that theme seemed to fit right into the idea. Who is the Christ? Whose son is the Christ? He is David's son. But more importantly, he is God's son. So as we enter into this season, I hope that you'll, you'll, that'll begin to stir your heart and your affections on these things. Um, we talked about in Sunday school today with, with the youth, um, we talked about the, the, the passage in second Corinthians. It talks about the idea of as we behold Christ, as we look on Christ, that we are being transformed from glory to glory, right? As we look to Jesus Christ, It is by looking to Jesus Christ that he changes our lives, okay? That he begins to sanctify us from glory to glory, bit by bit, from step by step, we are sanctified. And so um, what a perfect passage to look to the glory of who Jesus is um, and to know that as we look to Christ, God is going to use that to sanctify us and make us more like Jesus. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask that he would do that very thing. Ask that this would be an Advent season, um, not just of typical things where we, you know, get some presents and, and, and visit some family. Um, and not that there's anything wrong with those things. They're good things, but that God would use this as a season to draw our attention to Jesus Christ, that we would, our hearts would dwell more d- deeply uh, in, in Jesus Christ, that we would see him more clearly and more truly. And then in all that, you know, God would bless us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a story that, um, God, where Jesus uh, hints at, um, where he draws us into a scenario and a story where he doesn't just lay the answers out for us, but, but he expects that we will see the deeper significance in them because we have seen to the end of the story. We know um, what Jesus Christ has come to do. God, we recognize that he is the true Messiah. 
that he is the son of David, that he is the son of man, that he is the son of God. God, that he has come in, in service and in sacrifice to save his people, to give his life for his people. But that, and yet because of that, God, he is exalted. He is, he is the one whom even David calls Lord, that even great David, the man after God's own heart, looks to his descendant, Jesus Christ, and yet calls him Lord because he is Lord, because he stands above all of us, because he is the one that we all look to um, for our hope, for our salvation, God, for the grace and, and blessing of your presence in our lives. And so help us to see Jesus clearly. God, help us to dwell on Jesus, not just on um, the periphery of the Christian life. God, there are so many goods and blessings that you pour out on us that it is a it, it is easy sometimes for us to look to those things and take our eyes off uh, the author and finisher of the faith, and that is Jesus Christ himself. So help us to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ during this season. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand and sing the closing song. See you tonight. 
hope you had a great Thanksgiving, um, and it was a blessing in a time of, of uh, turning to God and, and recognizing all the many ways in which he's blessed us uh, and, and cared for us in the year, and, and knowledge and hope uh, and trust that he will continue to do so in the coming year. Um, we'll continue on in Luke. Uh, I think I told you last week that we'll be in Luke, um, with, except for a couple of weeks, uh, certainly through Easter. And so, uh, and by about that time, we'll be closing in on the end of, of the Gospel of Luke, which we've been in for, for a long time now. So, um, hope you have a good, good week. Um, hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, turn his face towards you and give you peace. See you next week.
career. Uh, baseball. <laughs> what did I do? What did so hard to Yeah, 
Thank you. 